bounce pass to Wiggins, rotates to the Thompson, it's a three, it's Winston Strong. Porter Jr. tipped it in the air. Williams had knocked away by Porter Jr. Curry takes the three off a dribble, banked it in straight on. The Bank of Memphis was open. This is the Golden State Warriors podcast. And now your host, the voice of the Warriors, at Warriors Vox, Tim Roy. Well, welcome back to the Warriors podcast. I'm Tim Roy. We're getting set for games three and four at Chase Center in the Western Conference semifinals. The Warriors went down to Memphis, got a split, but the, the story is convoluted now with the injuries that happened in game two and the words that were said, and it's all good playoff fun. And to help us dissect all of that, Sean Kelly of ESPN Radio, the former voice of the New Orleans Pelicans, and you hear him doing football, baseball, basketball on ESPN Radio. We welcome you, Sean, to the podcast. And you have entered this realm. You're coming to the Bay Area to broadcast uh, Warriors Grizzlies. And you're coming in right as the cauldron is stirring. <laughs> Things are percolating. And there's odd ingredients going on here. Uh, from afar, what, what have you seen in the time that you have had when you're not working? What have you seen with this series? Uh, I've seen spicy, <laughs> and, I'm, and I think the timing is great, Tim. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. I, it was it was interesting because uh, I was the front end of the doubleheader on Tuesday. I had uh, Milwaukee at Boston, and I hurried back to my hotel to catch your game, knowing that I was going to see you all uh, this weekend for games three and four. And I think I probably picked my mouth up off the floor in the hotel room two or three times. Uh, A, because of what I was witnessing real time, but also because I'm heading into that and what that would mean for, you know, initially game three on Saturday night. Yeah, you know, it's the um, – you can look at it either way. You know, Memphis comes back and they win game two, and John Morant is, you know, you couldn't stop him in the fourth quarter. He had 18 points. And, and Or, you know, as I was telling somebody on our flight back, he had to score those 47 to get the win. You know, can he do that every night? You know, and and will Clay Thompson rebound? So there's all those little subplots that that go throughout a playoff series. But I want to go to the the Dylan Brooks flagrant foul because uh, just because it, it it takes out a key component for the Warriors in this series in Gary Payton the second he guarded uh, Morant on like 84.8 you know partial possessions during the regular season holding him to 16% shooting. I mean, he's a guy that can actually make Morant, you know, think about where he has to go and, and work hard. How big do you see that injury playing out in this series? Well, it's huge because of just what you said right there. It's that it's that ability to throw another face or a competent defender at a guy like Morant, who obviously is that game played out when, when Gary leaves the game, Morant only gets better. And, and, that's not to take away anything from Morant because he was sensational in game one as well. And we've seen him now throughout this postseason put up, you know, unreal numbers for a, a young man of his age and experience. So, but yeah, on the surface, this is a big deal. It's a starter. It's a primary defender on John Morant. It's, it's in a postseason right now, Tim, where attrition is as big a story as anything else. Therefore depth comes into play too. So, God forbid, knock on wood, whatever, another injury assails the Warriors here this weekend. You know, you now don't have, you know, another additional body as far as depth goes. So these things play into it. And as far as the suspension goes, I'm really torn here. I don't think I had any doubt uh, based on precedent that 
Dylan Brooks would find himself suspended for a game. Um, and at first I kind of flinch when I hear the arguments about, well, he should be suspended for as long as Gary Payton is unavailable. And that seems somewhat arbitrary, but I also get it because of the impact in a condensed situation like a seven game series and whatnot. So I, 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 I'm, I would listen. I, I would not argue either side, but I certainly would listen to either side as far as how that suspension should be or should not be adjudicated in this situation. Well, I've come up with a Roy formula on this, so just to want you to please, know, please I have, share. I had so, and I, I thought about this too when 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 Grace and Allen, you know, did the midair, you know, stupid foul on on Caruso, and Caruso had to sit out a couple of months, and Allen got what one game. You know, so to me, if you're if you're if it's a call flagrant foul and it's upheld and you injure a guy, you know, I mean, and obviously, you you know, I don't know if you intend to injure the guy, but you put yourself at risk when you hit somebody midair. You know, that's just you just don't do that. But so now what I would do is, yes, they get suspended as long as that player is out. However, they do get a chance to appeal for a reduced sentence. And what I would do is have a panel of former players, coaches and referees GMs, however, whatever kind of mix you want to come up with, and they will hear your appeal. You can't play until that appeal, you know, is over, and they make their decision. Now, maybe they say, okay, you're out for ten games, or in this case, maybe you're out for the series. You know, something, something more than just a game. When you, you know, put a guy to the sideline. Again, this is Tim Roy's opinion. It's not the opinion of the Golden State Warriors or the NBA. Just throwing it out there, but. Um, you know, it, it just to me it, that when you hurt a guy, that that's a little bit different than just a common, you know, flagrant foul, if you will. And, and I would be willing to maybe maybe meet you halfway. I'm not so sure I need a panel, but you could say you could make a rule here that says uh, the the offender shall be out as long as the victim is sidelined up to a maximum of eight games, ten games, whatever yeah. that is. Yeah, pick a number, so, pick some some, some right. kind of number. Yeah. I, I don't know how you could say, or I, and I certainly don't know how the players' union would ever agree with, like in the Grayson Allen situation, Allen's now out for months because of Caruso's injury. I just, I don't see, I don't see the union going along with that, uh, and that would seem a little extreme for me. It, you know, it's not like Grayson Allen pulled out a bat and went to his wrist to to do that. And again, you can't. It's hard to judge uh, intent in these situations, so it would be tough to impose that kind of a penalty. But back to our current situation, uh, yeah, one game for Dylan Brooks seems light in the sense of what it means uh, for this series over the next 10 days. I'm a little more medieval than you are, okay, just so you know. (laughs) (laughs) You're also also, also dyed in in royal blue and gold last time I checked. Yes, yes, I am. Yes, I am. Rasheed Wallace, baby, CTC, cut the check. So... yeah, somebody's got to come out with a book of Rashid, just all the sayings. But the, you know, and and I think it's it's I think it's going to be a great series. I thought it was going to be at least six or seven going in, you know, just because they've been a matchup problem for Golden State. And on the flip side, they hadn't played this Warrior team, you know, with every most everybody healthy, and uh, so I, I still think it's going to be a, a great series. But let's talk about a couple guys in the series. First of all, let's go to John Moran since we brought him up already. Uh, give me your thoughts on him, and and you know it, it looks like that if he ever gets consistent with a mid range or three point jumper, he's going to be impossible to guard. Well, we'll see teams make adjustments for him. I mean, we've seen that obviously with the great ones over the years, but then the great ones always seem to find a way 
to overcome those things. I, I still think, you know, the newly minted here, most improved player uh, is still in this phase of, I don't know what I don't know. So he plays with this kind of reckless abandon or no sense of, of reality. And some of that comes because his uh, skills are somewhat non-realistic, but he changes possessions. The, the strange thing, Tim, that I can't quite put my finger on is a guy like him takes over the fourth quarter, wins game two for the Grizzlies. But yet also in, in all the highlight reel stuff this year and everything else, Memphis is still a very good basketball team with him off the floor. We saw it when he was injured. Absolutely. And missed yeah. a chunk of time. Yep. We see plus minus numbers that are kind of funky, even when he's healthy. And so he's in the game and the Grizzlies are this. He's on the bench and the Grizzlies are that. And so that's where I kind of pause or I hit pause on John Morant. Um, now, is he a matchup problem for Golden State? Uh, yeah, probably so. I went into the series maybe maybe leaning more toward like Warriors in five, to be honest with you, Tim, because of the collective playoff experience and the ability to manage late game situations. Uh, the fact that, you know, especially after game one, uh, you know, these unheard numbers of like, you know, the Warriors have won 12 straight playoff series when they've won game one. Uh, Steve Kerr, I probably, I'm going to be off on this 20 and two in game ones of series. I mean, those things led me to believe, especially after game one, that this is this is probably a gentleman's sweep here. And it still may be. Um, yeah, we'll but, see. I, I, the I think the Morant thing yeah. is the wild card. Yeah, it's a wild yeah. card now, especially without Peyton. I'm, just, I'm curious to see how much of an impact that has. And, and uh, you know, and hopefully we don't have any more, you know, flagrant fouls. Because as, as, you know, I'm not a huge Brooks fan as a player, but, but – he is a talent, and he helps he helps the Grizzlies just like Draymond helps the Warriors. So I, I want to give me a, an idea, and, and maybe I overstated this on the broadcast the other night, but I, I think the Grizzlies have to be in the top five, top ten at, at the very worst of teams that have worked the draft in the last, say, five to ten years. Because if you look up and down that roster, there's a whole bunch of guys, at least four or five guys, that were drafted either late first or in the second by somebody else, but drafted for the Grizzlies as part of a deal. And they just seem to have really done an outstanding job of targeting certain players that maybe other teams didn't value, knowing that they could make them into an NBA player. Yeah, and and Tim, I don't know if that was because they didn't feel like they – had a fan base or a media contingent that would give them a hard time if they missed. So maybe they were more comfortable in taking a risk on a player. I mean, look no further. Just go to Desmond Bain's situation and what he was in college, what what teams thought of him coming out, where he ends up, and it's it's like striking gold for them. And And again, like you said, they've done this now on multiple occasions. So credit them for – I don't know, thinking a little outside the box or taking a bit of a chance. But when they had as many picks as they did, and and back to the first thing I kind of mentioned about expectations or scrutiny, um, those things allowed them to make very smart moves. And uh, and look, you got to open the wallet up a little bit at some point here, and, and we're going to find out how how sustainable it is as these players come along. But no, look, I, I, I'd have a hard time finding another franchise that's done as well as they have with what they've been, what's been available to them, again, over, like you said, about a three- to five-year period. Yeah, three to five. Five to ten might have been too long. Three to five is, is absolutely spot on. Uh, talking with Sean Kelly here on the Warriors podcast, uh, Tim Roy and, and Sean, 
Um, the, the Warriors don't get – I think it kind of gets underplayed because it, it, they've done it so consistently. But they've won a road game in 25 consecutive series. You know, Curry, Thompson, Draymond Green have won a road game in each playoff series they've ever been in. I mean, that's, that's an amazing number. I don't think we'll ever see that again. Well, and, and look at the time period that they do it in, too. So think about the title year. So you've got four rounds in, in a given year to, to accomplish that. So you're doing this in a compacted amount of time. Uh, you know, this isn't something that's spread out over, you know, 20 years. It, it really is remarkable. It speaks to the poise of the players that are in the franchise. It speaks to their experience as well. But look, I, I just, you know, I think, I think you and I both know at the end of the day, talent wins, uh, and that's road and home. Um, it's it's a little bit why we see Phoenix in the situation they're in because of what they did during the regular season. Uh, and, and now they'll have to do what the Warriors have done in the postseason over these years by translating those road wins, you know, into these clutch type situations. So um, just it, it also speaks to here, Tim, and this is the point, I guess, as as probably hurtful as the Gary Payton situation is or letting John Maranco crazy in the fourth quarter you know, losing game two. The bottom line is a team like Golden State is smart enough to know that, A, we have to win on the road in the postseason. We've done it before, and we accomplished the goal that we set out to do, or they, I'm hoping they set out to do, which was split those first two games on the road at Memphis and come back home here with a with a chance to, you know, really take a hold of the series. So now give me your thoughts. What do you think is going to happen in, in the games three and four at Chase? Well, give me, what, do you, what do you expect? I really don't want to bring this up first, and we don't have to rank it first. <laughs> but, Tim, I'm going to be really curious to see who's on the whistle on Saturday night. Um, I've been in two series already this year where one game has dictated whom the, whom the NBA has sent officiating-wise to the next. I saw between games four and five in the Phoenix-New Orleans series. I saw the other night between games one and two in the Boston-Milwaukee series. And now with how physical – and uh, chippy and somewhat dirty this has gotten between the Warriors and the Grizzlies, I'm eager to see that officiating report on Saturday morning to see who the NBA has assigned uh, to the game. So I think the whistle matters. Um, the other thing is I think that Golden State, again, who has this propensity for throwing the ball around a little bit, uh, needs to tighten up uh, even just a touch because Memphis is one of those teams in this league that can really make you pay for your turnovers, and they love playing what I call the broken floor. So uh, those two things obviously are key. And then, you know, both teams, as we touched upon earlier, are without a starter from the last game in Dylan Brooks and Gary Payton. So what do these two head coaches do with that situation and, and the following rotations that come off the bench? Yeah, but if if the NBA assigns Scott Foster, I'm playing that mixtape on our pregame show. I guarantee you that. So the uh, Scott Foster rap, rapping is coming on to Warriors Radio. So. Well, it's interesting. In both of the situations I referred to, <laughs> two of the three members of the crew were David Guthrie and Courtney Kirkland. Okay. All Just right. Let then. that simmer for a moment. And I don't know if that's because they have a, a tempered or patient whistle or they just uh, are able to set a tone early. But I just know that in both instances where it seemed like they were going to send somebody in to kind of reset the whistle for the series, both those guys were on both of those adjustments. So – We'll see. Yeah, I think I think I think Saturday will definitely get a veteran crew because I just think that they have to have a crew that's going to be able to have control of the game and and uh, 
Because, like you said, it's been a fiscal series, and we, you know now we're down two starters. So I think there's going to be, you know, I think both teams will be testing each other on Saturday. I think it's going to be a lot of fun as it has been so far. Hey, before I let you go, two things. One, uh, we've been talking a little bit about the officiating, and and Damian Lillard tweeted out something during this series saying, you know, hey, I really wish we could something to the effect of, I wish we would clarify you know, on the flagrants. Do you think that's possible? And, and if you were king of the day, what would you do? I'm not so sure we can get too much more specific than we already are. Um, I, I just, I think that the ter- the determination, you know, the, you know, the, the, or the, the, the line here between one and two is whether a player should be able to stay in the game or not. I mean, am I, am I wrong on that with taking away some of the, the tools and phrasing and all that. Right. I mean, that's, that's really the bottom does line. He, does, does he deserve foul, to get ejected? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Does this foul, you know, deserve a, a trip to the showers? Okay. So um, now, <laughs> now you kind of get in the weeds on this as to what deserves to go off the floor. Or yeah. Not. It, it's very I, hard I, to legislate yeah. intent. You know, you, it's very hard, it, you know, it, it is. Correct. It's, but if I, I think if you kind of read between the lines or a little bit, and you talked about it earlier with, regards to the safety of an airborne shooter or an airborne player, I think that if if it looks to be, A, a an endangerment to another player, that's an easy one, and then the other one is just flat-out malicious intent. You know, uh, you know, we talk about it on the broadcast. We all have our little catchphrases and cliches. You know, he went, at, he went at the rim with bad intentions, that kind of a thing. Yeah. Look, sometimes it's pretty easy to figure out if somebody goes after another player with bad intentions. Um, and I think that's why, you know, I think it's effective to have another official in the replay center, another set of eyes, uh, you know, another mouth to, to conversate with the crew on the floor. So I, I know sometimes it, you're, you're splitting hairs and whatnot. Um, I don't have an answer for Dame, yeah. I guess is what I'm saying with a lot of words. I will say this. I do think it's getting – and I want to start counting, or I've got, you know, ESPN stats and info is great about this. I just feel like, Tim, and I've been around all these different series now from the play-in on, man, we are taking a look at a lot of plays to see to see if there's something more there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. We what? called a foul on the floor, and now and now we're going to go take a look to see if something more is there. And, and um, yeah, there's and a lot of that. It just seems like, wow. Yeah, and, I, and then at the end of game one, there was a play where the ball goes out of bounds, and two officials apparently didn't see it. And it's you know it's a key play. It's a you know last minute of the game, tight game. Ball goes out of bounds, and we jump it up instead of looking at that. That's the kind of play we should look at as, as a league. You know, that's the one that needs to be looked at. I mean, final minute of a I close game. I, you know, I mean that's right, and that surprised me because I thought that was a trigger. I thought it we used to be come to a consensus. It used okay, to be. Thank you for. It used to be yeah. everybody complained about it because they were looking at you know balls going out of bounds in a ten point game with thirty seconds to go, and then they said, well, okay, you can challenge that. But both the coaches had already used their challenges, so it was like don't oh, use their challenge, yeah. right? So well, anyway, it could be it, another tweet coming up. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, who knows? I'm not trying to solve everything here. I'm just trying to, to just <laughs> move ahead here, trying to move forward. Uh, but one thing I will I will say, and you and I both will agree on this, you know, we're talking about this stuff because we love this league, because we love doing what we do and watching these guys play. And one of the places you got to work in your career has been New Orleans. And Mark Spears, the great writer for The Undefeated, who is a Bay Area guy, and he pointed out to me earlier on this podcast that he thinks New Orleans 
should be given more time to prove itself as an NBA city simply because they haven't had a great deal of, of you know, winning teams there and, B, that it's so young as an NBA city, you know, not counting the New Orleans Jazz back in the day. Would you agree with that? I think so. Um, it's interesting because if you just look at the economics of the situation, uh, last time I checked, New Orleans is like market number 48 or 49. Um the economics or the demographics would tell you that that city has no business having an NFL and an NBA franchise, but yet it, it's just, it's a different place. And you've been there long enough to know um, they love their teams because of the, it's an extension of their identity, um, which makes them also a bit of a front runner too. So when things aren't going well for one of those franchises, it's not so much that they want to be there in the, in the stadium or the arena, but man, when when the team when they feel like that team represents them either in a positive light by winning, or the members of the team represent them as kind of hey they're just like us. They may not be here from here, but they they represent kind of our personality. Then they come out in droves and and, and they're one of the more electric places to play when they're doing well. Um, and they've been hamstrung by some you know weird ownership situations. Uh, the Katrina situation, obviously. But now now I think in a lot of ways they have set themselves up for something special over the next couple of years. I thought that was going to be the case in 2008 when they won the division and went, you know, game seven in the semifinals against the Spurs. But that was really the end of the George Shin or the beginning of the end for the George Shin family owner situation. Uh, being a family owner in the NBA was kind of a dying thing. And uh, his ability to keep that that Tyson Chandler, Chris Paul, David West, Peja group uh, together was just not going to be financially doable for them. And so they had to start kind of taking it apart, and it was a real shame. But, look, Mark's, I think Mark's correct in that, in that if given the chance here, it is a sustainable thing. And I think the other thing, too, and I'm going to throw this out, and I hope I don't get you or me in trouble, um, but I'm not so sure that expansion isn't, getting closer to us you know it's been on the horizon for a while if the nba expands and it seemingly would be that it would be seattle and las vegas if that happens perhaps new orleans gets shifted back to the eastern conference as they were when the team moved from charlotte to new orleans does that make for better rivalry situations um does it change the way the fan base looks at the team and their more common opponents i don't know but that would be a factor. Well, you tell me. Uh, from what I gather, their shortest flights are to Eastern Conference teams for the most part. They are, yeah. except for Houston yeah. and Memphis. Otherwise, the, they are geographically the furthest by by a hair because there's three teams along the river when you talk right. about New Orleans, Memphis, and Minnesota. But by a hair, they're the furthest east of any Western Conference team. So, you know, get, do you play Atlanta twice a year in your building because now you're in the same conference. It's already a rivalry with the football side. So sure. just little things like that. Does Miami become more of a rival because that's an easy flight? And and shoot, back when I was with the team, Miami in our, in, on, on the preseason schedule was automatic. It was just so easy for both franchises. And heck, half the time, we'd meet in the middle, like on the Florida Panhandle or in Mobile. So, um, again, that is a long way, maybe not a long way up. That is a little further down the road and somewhat more of an intangible to what Mark is speaking of. But I tend to agree, and and, and I think there should be – I don't think there should be any talk of 
that team leaving that city to go to one of the two that I just mentioned. And I also don't believe that the current owner, Mrs. Benson now will have it because right. she is more civic minded or has the civic identity than any other prior, you know, leader of that franchise. Uh, so, you know, it yeah. would have to be a, become a, a dire situation for her, for she to let that go. Yeah, her and her husband have always been that way down there, just uh, doing a great yeah. job of that way. Yeah, and, um, and, and, and she's even more so now since his passing. So um, she's been quite outspoken about it. So, you know, we'll see how it cool. goes. But, look, th- there's no doubt that that future is bright. And, and, and that's been the fun thing for me, Tim, and I know I'm taking up all your time here. But um, these playoffs are emblematic of – I think a really exciting time in the league. The, the ratings are all up. The Warriors oh, are yeah. back to being a super relevant draw. And then you've got these young teams, Memphis, Minnesota, to some extent, New Orleans is going to be in this situation. If Denver ever gets their guys back, I mean, I, you know, this, this, and you, you've done this much longer than I have. I'm trying to remember a time when the league was perhaps more healthy than it is here in the last, you know, over the last, say, 15 years well, as to where it stands right now. Yeah, despite what people think and what people say in certain markets, it's the, the league is so strong right now. You don't need L.A. and New York to be great to have a great postseason. We're proving that this year. Right, you don't need those. That? You don't yeah. need those franchises to be number one or number two. Now, it might be better because we know their TV markets are large and the whole bit, but you don't have to have that. And so, that's the cool thing about the NBA right now is that it's 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 past that. It doesn't need to have that to have a great season. And uh, and the other thing is, uh, boy, I, every every other year I look at a draft and go, wow, look at all the talent that came out in that draft. And the the league just keeps getting better and better in terms of overall talent. I think it just it's it's an well, amazing. Well, yeah, I, so. agreed. I, I think the league though needs to send a big, huge fruit basket though to uh, to Golden State because well, let me take you one step further. No New York, no L.A., no Chicago, no Houston. The four largest markets in the country irrelevant this NBA postseason. The, the Golden State Warrior effect is is very large, and nobody should discount that. No grapefruit in that basket. Don't want the grapefruit. You can keep the grapefruit. Keep <laughs> that enough. at home. Okay. Fair enough. Always great, as you know, to talk some round ball with you. We're very excited for your success and your, your role at ESPN, and uh, look forward to seeing you out of Chase this weekend. Thanks for uh, taking away some of your time. I know home time is very precious at this point of the year. So thank you so much and thank your wife for us and I'll see you on Saturday. It's always a yes for you guys. And I can't wait to see you all this weekend. Sean Kelly of ESPN radio joining me on the Warriors podcast. And as you know, on the Warriors podcast this year, we've been looking back at 75 years, 75 stars as we celebrate 75 years of Warriors basketball. It's time for 75 years, 75 stars, as we celebrate 75 years of Warriors basketball in the NBA. Tonight, the man with a great memory, Jerry Lucas, who was a high school star in Middletown, Ohio. It is 61 to 59. The Mitty's putting it in play to Sizer. Sizer up the floor to Emory, and it is out of bounds. It's out of bounds there against the Mitty, against McComber. Lucas shoots. Good! It's going to be an overtime, I believe. Hold on. Hold on. I believe it's going to be an overtime. It is an overtime. The bucket by Lucas counts. Chris Paul Walker completely collapsed on the floor with one second to go.
Lucas pumped it in behind the circle. It's an overtime. That overtime would lead to a high school championship. He would play three years at Ohio State, leading them to three NCAA finals. He was drafted by the Cincinnati Royals, where he won NBA Rookie of the Year in 1963-64, averaging 17 points and 17 rebounds. He would play six-plus seasons with the Royals, excelling but not winning. The Warriors acquired him early in the 1969-70 campaign in a deal that involved Jim King and Bill Turner. Lucas would play almost two full seasons with the Warriors. Mullins into the forecourt, lobs one to Lucas going under, and he muscles it up, scores! I don't think Lucas missed yet in the second half. If that's the case, he's 9 out of 10. He helped the Warriors improve to 41 and 41 his second year. They would end up losing to Milwaukee in the first round of the playoffs. Golden State would trade Lucas to New York for Cassie Russell. And in 1973, he helped New York win the title and completed his championship basketball journey, as he told Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show after the Knicks win. Well, I, that was my first, Johnny. I was, yeah, I was the most excited uh, because I had not been on a championship team before in the NBA. It was sort of filled the gap in for me. I was a on a high school state championship team, a collegiate uh, championship team, and an Olympic championship team, but I'd never won the big one as a pro. And I was more excited than anybody on the club because I'd been playing 10 years and five of the players had previously won it and all the other players were younger than I was. So everybody else was a little more subdued than me. He would play 143 games for the Warriors, averaging 17 points, 15 rebounds, while shooting 50% from the field. He was a seven-time All-Star. He was a six-time All-NBA player, four times making the first team. He was known after basketball for his unbelievable memory, including the ability to recite the Manhattan phone book. He was named to the 50 Greatest Players team and the 75th Anniversary team and was inducted into Springfield in 1980. 75 years, 75 stars. Jerry Lucas. This has been 75 years, 75 stars. That's it. Game three and game four at Chase Center this weekend and on Monday night. So we'll be back with another Warriors podcast next week as the series will turn to Memphis. I want to thank James Kincaid here on the Warriors podcast, the guy who heads up everything audio for the Golden State Warriors franchise. That is R.C. Davis. I'm Tim Roy. Tell your friends about the Warriors podcast, and thanks for checking us out here at Warriors.com or wherever you get yours.